Welcome to the MI Hunting Podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by Albert Tomeshko, owner and founder of Biolized Seeds Company. So we talk about his new product and talk about soil health. All right, welcome to MI Hunting Podcast. Thank you for listening. So this episode was really fun. I got to talk with Albert, one of the owners and founder of Violet Seeds Company. Now, I was pretty excited about this product because, you know, I talked about in the past how I have been working on creating my own seed blend. And one of the things that was hardest for me, not really to pick which type of plants to use, um, but more on how to properly know when to, or how much of each type of seed to put in the mix and not overseed or not underseed or, you know, that, that type of thing. It, it drove me nuts trying to figure that out. So just so happened one day I was catching up on some podcasts I like to listen to. I was listening to the Habitat podcast and Jared had Albert on and they talked about this new seed company that they had put together and that they were releasing or had just released listen to talk about a little bit about how they basically do a two planting system where you do a spring planting and then your fall planting and then they basically put together mixes that were quite quite a bit similar to what I was trying to create as well so basically they had built the the seed blend that I was trying to strive for uh, so I was very eager to you know look into it research it quite a bit and like I said a lot of those plants similar in what I was hoping to do was able to talk to Albert a little bit on the phone talk about the blend and how I was excited about it it'd be perfect to get Albert onto the show and talk about it um, especially after talking to him on the phone you know this guy is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to different plant species and building soil health and ultimately building a food plot uh, blend that you can hunt over essentially as well so, but before we get into the conversation with Albert, I do want to highlight a couple of different things. First, we do have an upcoming event uh, up here in Northern Michigan. The Northwest Michigan branch of the National Deer Association is holding a women's 3D archery event. Uh, they're doing it again at the Kingsley Sportsman Club. They're doing that Saturday, August 13th at 10 a.m. We did it last year and I helped kind of helped with the event a little bit, helped support it a little bit, and it was an absolute blast. You know, my wife uh, shot during that event. My sister, my sister actually won a couple, or actually I think she won a tree stand um, as part of their giveaway. And and I'm hoping that they both attend this this year, and I hope that for the opportunity to be able to assist with that event as well. So if you if you know. Uh, a lady that does shoot archery or your lady yourself that would like to come and shoot during that event they actually did up do an update of their course they actually added some more targets expanded a little bit so they've made some improvements um, even from last year so if you're in the area hope to see you there all right next we're going to take a quick stop over at the conservation news desk got a pretty interesting news article or some conservation news here so let's jump into it Alright, so this article comes from fieldandstream.com, but if you look up anything about this news article, you're going to find lots of different hits. Lots of people have reported on it. So essentially, uh, Representative Andrew Clyde from Georgia has introduced a bill that is dubbed the Return Our Constitutional Rights Act to Eliminate, or Constitutional Rights Act, and this is to eliminate the 11% federal tax on firearms and ammunition. Uh, essentially, it's the um, Pittman-Robertson Act. So that that act is a federal tax that basically goes to conservation. So basically, this bill was introduced in response to a Democrat-sponsored bill that seek to impose a 1,000% tax on any AR-style rifle. The Second Amendment and gun rights have been a big hot topic. 
So ultimately what Clyde is saying is that any constitutional right that's being taxed isn't really a constitutional right anymore because basically that tax is, you know, making it to where certain people can't potentially purchase them, you know, by adding additional costs onto the onto the product or onto that firearm or ammunition. It makes it harder for people to be able to afford it. Ergo, making it harder for people to, you know, have access to their constitutional right. Now, totally get where they're coming from in that aspect. You know, this, the Pittman-Robertson Act, you know, this was a voluntary uh, tax that, uh, you know, conservation, outdoorsmen, hunters wanted to add on to it because they knew they needed to do something to help generate funds to help support conservation. So right now there are 51 co-sponsors to this bill. Now, if you look at it, they are all Republican uh, sponsors to this bill, which is not too surprising. You know, this we will have to wait and see with this bill because it has been just introduced, um, hasn't gone to committee or any additional talk about it. I suspect that this bill isn't going to make it very far. Uh, it's going to be hard to get support, um, especially those who are into firearms and hunting to back the repeal of basically the Pittman Robertson Act, you know, basically denying those funds that, you know, we take so much pride in whenever we buy our firearms or ammunition, knowing that that's going, part of that's going to conservation as well. So it's unlikely that this bill is going to make it very far, but it'll be just, we'll just have to wait and see as to what comes of it. All right, so that's it for the intro. Let's get into the conversation with Albert. All right, man. So yeah, go ahead, introduce yourself, and then uh, we'll take off and get into talking about the the mixes and the the plants and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely, Ty. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, Albert Temechko or Al James, as some people know me on Facebook. I'm pretty active on Habitat Chat, which is the uh, I'm an admin there, which is the group that's associated with Habitat Podcast. I've been friends with Jared and Brian over at Habitat Podcast for many years, and have got to be on their show and, and a few other podcasts, you know, over the years. Uh, manage our family's property in Eastern Ohio, and have for uh, I think we're going on 12 years now. We've managed that particular property. And we started with about five acres of food plots. And um, I think we're up to, oh gosh, uh, I think we're doing 11 acres twice a year. So planting about 22 to 25 acres of food plots on that one property. Um, and then I have several other properties that I, I help to manage and, and uh, hunt as well, which is a lot of fun. Everything from small 10 acre pieces up to some uh, 70 or 80 acre pieces. Just really passionate about wildlife, uh, you know, manage our family property from everything from food plots to soil conservation, um, obviously is my passion, but uh, also TSI and equip programs for removing invasives um, and things like that. And we've been pretty fortunate to shoot some pretty good deer over the years, you know, after managing it. So uh, that's been a real success story for us. And I started uh, started Vitalize Seed with Jared. Um, I think it was April or March, we, we started the company, you know, and you'd said, well, how did, how did you start a seed company? Well, to be honest with you, I never really wanted to start a seed business. I enjoy writing. Anybody who might follow me is probably like, yeah, you're long-winded sometimes. And, and I can be for sure, um, but I do enjoy writing quite a bit. And I was writing blogs on uh, The Ohio Outdoors and then um, Habitat Talk, which is another forum after the QDMA forums went down, a bunch of guys um, went over there and there's a bunch of really, really knowledgeable guys on, on every forum. Michigan Sportsman's another great one that I've been on more recently. I got invited to join it. So um, I did get on there and uh, have really enjoyed meeting a lot of the guys um, on that particular forum as well. So in the beginning about, I don't know, probably six years ago, I started hearing about like no-till more frequently and I was a younger guy and I was looking at, you know, $2,000 a, a, a planting season and fertilizer costs. And there was just such varying responses from people about, you know, what's needed. Like some guys said, you have to fertilize and other guys, well, oh, you don't have to, you know? And I kind of started doing some experiments and, and stuff. And um, long story short, I started saying, you know what, I'm going to have these clover plots. And then I'd oversee with like radish and rye. And that was, that was it. I would just, and, and I'm, people would say, oh, you'll never get, you know, per, you need perfect soil, seed to soil contact and all this stuff. And sure enough, 
the following spring, you know, I'd, I'd go back and my clover would look even better and I'd have rye everywhere throughout it and totally act as a weed suppressant. The allopathic traits of it. And I had good rat, fairly good radish. You know, it wasn't like if you tilled it up and had a perfect seed bed, but I knew that wasn't going to happen. Right. And I was like, well, gosh, I didn't put any fertilizer down. There's something to this, you know, and just kind of dove in more and more and kept writing these blogs and telling, telling people, Hey guys, I, I cut down my planning time from, you know, three days to, you know, a, a day, day and a half of, of planting and doing all, you know, no-till and, uh, you know, terminating with an herbicide in a lot of cases. And um, because of that, then I was more interested in like, okay, how can I get, you know, more diverse blends? And I started reading more books on this and Ray Archuleta, Ag PhD, Mitch Horror. I mean, there's so many guys out there in the ag space. And that's really where I put my focus was kind of into academia and the ag space, because I felt like they're coming from somewhat of an unbiased position. They're not really trying to sell anything. Occasionally there's somebody tied to like a liquid fertilizer or something, but like I wouldn't be buying in a volume that they care about me anyway. So just really was learning from a lot of these different guys and every book I could read that had the term regenerative agriculture, no-till, cover crops. Um, I read every podcast I could listen to, uh, et cetera. And I started sharing this information. And what I found was to, to my surprise is I'm like, man, there's a lot of people who are interested in this. What I also found is that there was a lot of people who either didn't like the mixes that were currently out there or, you know, in the beginning, I'd be like, well, you know, just try to make your own mix. And what I found is people are like, well, I'm very frustrated with this because I go to a co-op and they tell me, well, I'm not going to sell you four pounds of hairy veg. Like, you <laughs> right. know, they're like, you need to buy a, a bushel. And, and growing up in Ohio, that was a little bit surprising to me. I mean, I've went to some really bad co-ops. I'm not trying to say every co-op in Ohio is great. Like I went to some and I asked them for winter rye and they look at you like you have, th- you know, three heads. They're like, what they don't even know and you know it's some young kid they hired there that doesn't he's just like hey i'm trying to you know make money and go home at the end of the day (laughs) so but but i had some really really good ones too and you know i i was like or you know in our spring mix we have sun hemp and that was another one people are like i can't get sun hemp in my area you know and i so a lot of people were like hey well when you make your mixes can we just buy it off of you and i'm like well that gets kind of Harry, you know, unless I start actually making a company. So I had been on Jared's podcast and did, uh, he did like a soil health series, I think he called it. And um, we got to interview Mitch Hora, who's the founder of Continuum Ag, huge ag farmer in uh, Iowa. And that was really awesome. And then uh, Jared got a lot of messages from people. Hey, I really love this. You know, this whole soil health movement is really interesting to me for this year with fertilizer costs and glyphosate costs going up. Um, there was just a huge interest. So I don't know, the stars kind of aligned. We made some calls, things ended up working out. And, uh, you know, we, we launched Vitalized Seed Company and uh, the whole idea behind it is not to be, I don't, what I felt was missing in, in a lot of these seed companies is there was a lot of confusion because people were, wait, there's like 300 mixes here. Which one am I supposed to plant when, you know? And what I wanted to do is, and I told Jared, I was like, let's make a seed company that focuses on two mixes. That's it. You know, we're not trying to be the shade tolerant uh, trail logging road mix. You know, we're not trying to be all in. I'm sure we could think of a hundred other types of mixes that are out there, which are great. Like I would buy those for that situation. I just don't want to be the one I want to focus on soil health and I want to streamline soil conservation. So we made a spring mix and a fall mix. Spring feeds fall, fall feeds spring, and so on. And it's really, I'll leave you with this, and then and then, at least for part of the introduction, because again, I can, I can go on for a while, I'm passionate <laughs> about it, it's my business, right? So I can go on for a long time about it. But I almost have come to the point where I don't like the term build soil, and I use it all the time, which I, I kind of kick myself, because at the end of the day, Ty, we're not trying to build soil, we're really, that's a byproduct of good soil management and nutrient cycling. So like what our mixes focus on is not necessarily like building soil. Will Do I think that those things will happen over time? Sure. But I don't consider it a soil building mix. I consider it a nutrient cycling program because our spring mix is 
building up the nutrients and feeding the microbes and doing all the things that we want a spring mix to do in order to reduce fertilization needs so our fall mix can take advantage of the work that our spring mix did through biology, right? And now our spring mix is gonna be breaking down while our fall mix is assimilating those nutrients and doing all of the things that we needed to do all fall and winter long to then feed our spring mix the next year, right? So you're really cycling the nutrients versus just this idea of, hey, I, I wanna put a soil building mix together. Um, I think that's a little bit misleading in a lot of ways um, not that it's wrong. Again, I use the term all the time, but as I've kind of pondered on that, I just felt like sometimes it can be a little bit misleading because, you know, you plant a soil building mix and then go deep till it under, or you go put 40, you know, 300 pounds of 46 LO on there. Well, you're not necessarily making your system more efficient. So are you building soil, right? Like, so that's where it can get a little bit uh, of a slippery slope. But what I wanted to do with vitalized seed kind of bringing a full circle is, uh, streamline that process for people, make highly attractive, highly top quality seed blends, one that feeds the next. And, um, you know, we offer free shipping. We have 13 or 14 distributors now um, already throughout the United States. And uh, we're hoping to add some more. And uh, we're hoping to continue to, I write a soil health blog every Friday to just educate people. I mean, it might mention Vitalize Seed here and there in the the article, but uh, there's a lot of information in those, you know, that we put out. So people, whether you're using our seed mix or not, you kind of understand, okay, what is the nitrogen cycle? What does that mean? And, uh, you know, we're, we're passionate about it and we really love our customers and we've, it's, it's been amazing um, so far. So. Well, it's good, man. Yeah. I mean, when I first heard about it, it was probably, well, probably about two months ago, I was catching up on uh, Jared's podcast and heard that you were on there. I'm like, oh, okay, I checked this out. And then Im- immediately when I brought it up, I started looking at like, oh, they do they do two system planning. Like that's already what I'm trying to do. I, we've talked about it offline, but you know that you know I do a, a spring or early summer planning, and that's my cover crop to get me ready for the fall. Um, so the fact that you developed a program that's already doing what I was trying to do already, that was like, oh, well, perfect. That's perfect. You know, stars aligned in that regard. And then I started looking at your mixes and it's like, these are mixes that I was trying to develop on my own as well. So the fact that, you know, that you came up with something that was something that I was kind of envisioning trying to do myself anyways, it was like, this is, I have to try this. I have to try this seed. And then especially too, after talking to you and just knowing how much thought you've put into it and, you know, looking at the mixes and everything like that, like, I'm, I'm excited to see what it looks like this, this, uh, this fall, especially. Um, I was actually just out today on putting out lime. So probably when I'm, we're done with this uh, interview, I might go out and put the other half down. So I did about 500 nice. or 750 pounds today. So, um, nice. but yeah, I mean, and like you said, it's, it becomes a process and I would say it is a little scary getting into the, the notion of doing no-till, especially when you start hearing people talk about that, oh, you don't need to fertilize or it's always been for years that you know, you need to make sure that you fertilize and, you know, if you don't fertilize, you're not going to get it, anything to grow. So it's, it's, it's kind of scary to try to rip that Band-Aid off um, and get away from the, I'm trying to think of the word now, you know, older farming practices, essentially. Yeah, where you kind t- of conventional practices. Yes, thank you. That's the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Because, um, yeah, my journey kind of started about three years ago. Uh it was kind of that same idea where I wanted to do something a little bit better. It was taking me, you know, I would spend days upon days trying to get a field ready and it was just too much time and effort. So then looking into the no-till, like, well, that looks easier. Like they're doing it in less time, less resources. So I started playing around with it and, you know, certainly I didn't know it was an improvement right away where, yeah, for time-wise, it's so much easier you go out plant and terminate all same day and then you're done you're done with it um now certainly i ran into an issue where i didn't have the mixes quite right and my soil wasn't you know working efficiently so i had a buildup of you know organic matter building up on top or duff where i was having some issues with you know seed to soil contact so i did end up last year doing i hated doing it but i did a very shallow light till just to break some of that up so i could get good seed yeah. to soil contact again and I mean, it, it kind of broke my heart doing that, but I, it was felt like it was necessary at the time. But yeah, and then now this year, especially with the prices of that fertilizer, I mean, even glyphosate, you know, skyrocketed this year. So, and, and fortunately with the 
findings from the soil sample could get away with not doing any fertilizer. So that's what I'm doing for the year. I'm just going to improve my pH and see how it goes for the rest of the year, really. So, so it's kind of a testament that, you know, especially in times like this, it really benefits to, you know, go, go away from that conventional farming practice and try that no-till because at least in my experience, I've felt that it's saved me time and money so far. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing too. Like, I mean, we're growing, essentially we're growing cover crops two times a year. You know, I mean, most farmers who, even the ones who are doing extremely diverse cover crops, I mean, they're not fertilizing their cover crop mixes and you drive by, um, you know, in Ohio here, it's, it's more and more and more and more common you drive. And it's just like, I don't know what percentage, but there are pockets where it's hard to find a field that doesn't have cover crops on it, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the winter time. And they look green as could be. Now they might have some residual fertilizer, you know, from the previous farming practice, which with precision ag and stuff is getting, they're not just throwing it on anymore, right? It, it's getting more and more specific. But I try to t- tell guys a lot of times too, is I, I don't want to sound like a negative Nancy. So hopefully I don't come across that way, but I've almost started to, again, resent the term like re- regenerative um, agriculture. And there's some really good people in that movement. And I think that's where it gets like the lines get blurred. Um, Mitch Hoare did a really good job on the time uh, Jared and I got to interview him because he was basically like any steps that you're taking towards implementing the six soil health principles is a step towards regenerative agriculture. So like he's like, you know, we try to and he, they are big time farmers. I forget how many acres, but um, he's like, you know, we've reduced our Roundup use or glyphosate use by 30 percent. But they've reduced their nitrogen by 50 percent you know just for time i don't remember specifically but he's like that's a step towards regenerating the system you know we're using 100 percent cover crops on all of our fields so take a step back and look at it you know the whitetail world i like to tell people we we have to pull soil samples you know like our mixes i haven't used fertilizer in six years i have used lime and i will continue to use lime i but i i just think it's so critical to understand okay, what are soil samples telling us? What is our pH? What are the base saturations? Like, let's start there, right? Then, like, what is the nitrate at six inches depth? Like if we, like I use Ward Labs and, you know, I get that reading, you know, if my nitrate's zero, it's like, okay, wow, there's there's no, why is that? You know, was what was planted here previously? What's the organic matter level? Are we gonna have OM mineralization occurring to give me any nitrogen or P and K, you know, throughout these things? So, you know, all of your macros, um, understanding that, understanding what's been planted before, what's gonna be planting after, understanding your base saturation. So what's the calcium, magnesium, and potassium on your soil colloid? You know, well, in sandy soils, like I get, a, I look at a lot of soil samples from Michigan. I mean, a lot, and, and guys will say like, okay, I got a sub five or sub eight CEC soil. It's like, okay, that's fairly light. Um, and I'll look at their magnesium and their magnesium's at five or 6% base saturation, maybe 10% base saturation. And I immediately go, okay, in their pH, let's say is 5.8. Calcium's probably like 40, 50%. I'm like immediately we need to use dolomite lime on this field immediately and here's why because your calcium base saturation is too low your magnesium is way too low for that low of a cec soil that alone is going to help to structure your soil better magnesium allows the soil colloid to be much tighter so on the flip side of that like on my farm in southeastern ohio in the foothills of appalachia you it can have very heavy soils with high magnesium content, which can sometimes drive up your pH. So in those type of situations, if your pH is already past say seven, so you don't wanna put lime down, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Well, how are you gonna drive your magnesium out of your, your soil profile? Some guys will use um, sulfur, uh, elemental sulfur, which will either drive calcium or magnesium out, depending on which one's higher or more dominant on the soil colloid. Um, you do need to make sure that you have good drainage. Another one is gypsum. Gypsum's um, high in calcium, right? And it won't impact your uh, pH, or in most situations, it will not impact your pH, but it'll force magnesium off of your soil, soil colloid. 
Well, calcium is much larger, right? So think of it as like taking up pore space in the soil. So if you want your soil tighter because it's sandy, you want more magnesium in there because it's going to pull everything tight. But if you want your soils already tight because there's too much magnesium, you want more calcium in there. And that's going to give you more porosity. So right there is something that I feel like often gets overlooked and just people, well, plants fix everything. I believe it. Biology is amazing. But I think we can help these things out. We don't, I, I hope I live for 150 years, but the odds are not likely, you know? So we have a short period of time to quote unquote, fix these soils and optimize our plantings. So to me, it's like, if you don't want to use fertilizer, that's okay. I'm not against fertilizer. I think in some cases, in some super degraded soils, personally, I think a foliar application, especially with some of the stuff out there now with humic acid base, you know, um, you get plants growing and at two weeks, you just give them a, you, you give them a, a, a dosing of a foliar application and maybe some micronutrients in there and stuff. I think that's really a cool idea, um, especially for guys doing wildlife plots because you don't, you're not trying to grow world record corn yields here. <laughs> you know, you can foliar feed these, these crops just enough. Some of them are going to decompose. It's going to go back into the soil for the next crop. Like, you know what I mean? So um, I think in really degraded soils, that's a really awesome idea. Uh, but I think that's one of the things is to like, I used to be in a Facebook group, uh, regenerative agriculture, I think it was regenerative agriculture. It was like a huge group, people all over the world. And I actually was really active and had a lot of nice comments and stuff on there. Um, but where I drew the line is I remember mentioning liming a field and people like jumped down my throat. Like you should never, you know, like zero amendments should ever be, be done. And uh, that's when I said, I, I just can't be in this group anymore because this is ridiculous. Like we, we have to be able to neutralize our, our pH, right? In this situation. Um, and we degraded the soil. So I think we kind of have to fix it, you know, and right. just to wait for plants to do that um, can take a while. Same discussion we could have tie on herbicide, you know, roller crimpers are awesome. But I don't know if you've ever been to Southeastern Ohio, but the terrain is extremely rugged. I mean, you're not going out and just rolling down the road, you know, some flat field. I mean, your terrain is up and down and sideways and this and that. So to get a roller crimper to have constant down pressure and to do, you know, 11, 12, 13, 15, 20 acres, whatever you're planting and get perfect termination is is not great. Like you're almost better off in a lot of cases using a flail. If you don't want to use herbicide at all, using a flail mower or some guys don't say, well, a bush hog windrows everything, but I've had great success with, with bush hog. And I haven't had, I haven't had the major windrow. Now, do I have a perfect thatch? No, but it's been good enough. Then, I mean, the, the plants have grown extremely well out of my mixes, um, you know, on our website, those are all off my farm. Haven't had an ounce of fertilizer in six years. And we're just using nutrient cycling to, you know, get through those. And uh, I've either bush hogged those or sprayed down with herbicide. Um, again, I think there's, they're all our tools in our toolbox that can be used. And that's one of the things I wanted to bring to this market was like accessibility and be able to sit down and talk to like you called me and, you know, we talked on the phone for a half hour. Well, if you're talking to me, it was probably longer, but uh, we talked for a while and I just don't see that at, happening with a lot of other people. And I can just base it off of the amount of questions I see on, on social media platforms about, Hey, how does this work? You know, or, and there just isn't a lot of people out there to sit down and talk and go, Hey, let, let's work through your specific example, you know, and, and take it from there. So that's kind of what we're trying to bring to the market. So we kind of covered the, you know, a little bit about, you know, the implementation. So, so you said that, you know, with the, the, Nitro Boost, that's the spring one. And, you know, that's going to be what I haven't seen what's in now that one, but is it mostly like the legumes in it? Correct. So it's it's heavy in legumes. So you have two different types of soybeans. You actually have a high quality forage soybean, which is an Eagle soybean, if you're familiar with Eagle right. um, at all. And then we have an ag bean in there as well. We do have a uh, spring grain, 
um, in order to try to capture some of the nitrogen that would be naturally decomposing from organic matter. So OM mineralization produces nitrogen. You can look up uh, NRCS or anything like that will have, you know, between 10 and 30 pounds. Sometimes it varies by state of every percent of organic matter is going to equate to uh, 10 to 30 pounds. Let's just use for talking purposes of, of nitrogen release per year you know, 33% organic matter, you could have up to 90 pounds of nitrogen release per year. But if you have a monoculture of legumes um, in there and that nitrogen is getting, is getting broken down and released, there's really no reason for those legumes to suck up that nitrogen, right? They, they do use some, they do assimilate some, but they're also fixing their own and, and they don't necessarily need a, an exorbitant amount of, of nitrogen, you know, very, very minimal. Most soil tests will just say none. Um, when planting legumes for, for nitrogen, uh, nitrogen fertilization recommendations. Right. So, um, so that's why I just kind of go on a tangent, but I, that's why we have some barley in there. That's why we have sunflowers. Um, I call it keeping the nutrients in the cycle. We want to capture things before they leach out, you know, nitrogen goes through the cycle becomes nitrate at some point in its lifetime, which is inorganic nitrogen, but it's actually naturally, naturally occurring. I just wrote a blog post on that this morning, um, and posted it up because, uh, I think that confuses people a lot. They think nitrate is just this like chemically manufactured substance, but like nitrate is naturally occurring in our system. Um, it's just inorganic nitrogen. Now we can apply inorganic nitrogens in nitrate form that are man-made, but nitrate is naturally occurring in the nitrogen cycle. Okay. Yep. Um, and it was been doing it long before the Herbert Bosch method was, was, was made to um, mass produce uh, nitrogen fertilizers. But what is interesting about this is, so in our system, you know, we have the sunflowers, we have the barley, we have, uh, this year we had rape as a brassica. Um, we try to do, uh, you know, every plant type, type of plant species, excuse me. Um, and then we have, you know, sun hemp, uh, hairy vetch, uh, basically all your annual clovers. You got your crimson clover, your, your, um, Balan fixation balanza, which is an awesome end fixer in monocultures. It can produce up to like 220 pounds of N. Uh, it's been shown to produce uh, per acre, which is crazy. Um, absolutely, it's, it's yeah, that's craziness. Um, I'm trying to oh, sorghum. Sorry, uh, sorghum. That's another. So that's obviously not a legume, but we're we're looking to capture some of that. And also, we had a little bit of above ground biomass. Yep. Um, some some people have asked like, what about corn? You know, and you could definitely do corn. Um, the neat thing about sorghum is, uh, at least in some of the studies I've seen, that it has about five times the root mass of corn which is really cool for aerating your soil. And also think of the root exudation that's happening. Sorghum is just a photosynthetic capturing engine. I mean, you probably have seen some of the pictures, like some of the leaves are on, on my farm. I just posted, I think that was last week. Some of the leaves are 18 inches long and you know three, four inches wide. I mean, just capturing so much sunlight. I'm trying to think if there's anything outside. There's like 13 things in that mix. I should have had it in front of me, but that's probably the gist. And I'm likely gonna tweak it slightly next year. I wanna add just, a little bit more diversity, change up a couple things. Um, I was really impressed with the rape this year in it. I I wasn't sure, I've planted rape in the mix before, but I wasn't sure if there was a better option um, versus, you know, rape versus maybe, um, I don't know. I, I just wasn't sure if there was a different brassica that maybe I should be doing. I've seen some um, discussions on radish, but then all of the studies I found on radish in the springtime is like it puts most of its energy into seed production and doesn't really create much of a tuber. But what blew me away is the browse between myself, my good best buddy, who's our distributor in Southeastern Ohio um, on his farm, and then a couple of customers, the browse, the rape has taken, and it's taking it really well. Like it's really been super browse tolerant. Like it'll get browsed, but then it keeps growing. Um, so now I'm like, well, you know, I'm really happy that it's performing as well as it, it has um, performed. And I'm sure that it's captured quite a bit of nitrogen, you know, for us, it's going to be terminated and released for that, that uh, fall uh, crop. Right. So, um, so in regards to the, the nitro boost, I mean, I know timing dates is going to be different across the country, but how much time are you looking or should we kind of be looking at in between from when you plant the nitro boost to when you start to look at planting your your carbon load is there a particular like maturity time frame that you kind of want to stay within or i think for everybody's situation is different right so if you want to get this the most out of the the nitro boost obviously the longer you can let it grow the better um i plan in mine this year in may 13th and i will be planning my fall mix uh august 13th roughly okay give or take a day 
Um, if you can give it that, most of the species in Nitro Boost are at full, everything's at full maturity at 90 days. There's nothing in there that's, maybe sunflowers might have like a window, like they might be like 70 to, to 100. Like, you know, they, they might give you a window on sunflowers. Um, again, if we were worried about harvesting sunflower, I, I'd be more concerned with that. Um, but from a root structure perspective and taproot setting down, you get 60 days. I mean, you're doing good things for the soil gotcha. and from a wildlife perspective. Um, so I would say minimum, I'd, I'd like people to try to aim for 60 days to at least get nitrogen fixation to occur, the root structure to occur. Um, but I mean, we, we did a couple studies this year um, where guys were planting in what I would say is colder temperatures than I would have thought would have been adequate from a soil, from a, the t- outside temperature to find, but the soil temperatures were still relatively cold. Um, but kind of looking at, you know, that 10 to 14 day forecast and saying, okay, soil temps are 54 degrees, 70, 70, 70, 80, 82, you know, they're looking at the fort and they're going, I'm going to drill that in because the, the temps are going to be up. That seed might sit for a few days, but it's going to slowly start to germinate. And by the time that soil temperature gets to 60, that seed's already got, you know, got some energy going towards it. I haven't seen en- enough on that yet that I feel confident in making that recommendation, <laughs> but we have got some really cool studies on that. So for me, um, I'm really happy. I mean, my fields look amazing this year. Um, we've had good rains. Um, I think the timing's been perfect. I think August 13th is going to be um, ideal for getting getting my fields established. But if you get them in a little bit later, say you're northern Michigan or something, um, so you're not going to be able to get them in at first or second week of May. Um, but you're likely going to probably want to plant your your fall mix then maybe um, later in August or even Labor Day. Um, after Labor Day, I think it starts to get a little bit hairy um, right. because you could get an early frost. You also could have it be 75 degrees in mid-October. So it's kind of hard to say, but uh, I, I like to say by Labor Day, I'd like to see most of the country have it planted, yeah. at least upper Midwest. I mean, you get guys in the Southeast, they can probably plant in like November. <laughs> right. Alabama, it's like that, that's, they, they can wait quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then in regards to the different planting styles, I mean, I know you guys have, basically have instructions on if you're doing to go through, if you're going to like drill it in, or if you're doing broadcasting and your seed rates actually aren't that much different between the two. I think it's only like a five to, I think you go up to 20% difference yeah. if you're broadcasting. So a little bit extra, you know, does, is there one that really seems to stand out more than the other, whether you drill it or broadcast it, or is it, is it pretty solid <clears throat> either way? Well, I mean, I've, I've for the last six years have done all broadcast. Um, so everything you see on our website, all those pictures are only broadcast method, um, either with a PTO spreader on the tractor or a, one year I got the tractor stuck. I did this huge, fairly large, like three and a half acre field. I did with a bag spreader uphill. I might about kill myself, <laughs> but, uh, oh, it was horrible. I was, it was horrible. The tractor got stuck. I had to shovel the seat out of the spreader. It was, it was a nightmare, but, uh, anyhow, um, so both work really well. Um, I, I mean, obviously drilling is, is almost ideal. I mean, right. I mean, that's, you're literally cutting the dirt, dropping the seed in the, in, in the uh, dirt or in the soil, I guess I could should call it and then packing it. I mean, it's just ideal. One thing I tell people though, is when you broadcast and I have witnessed this enough that I feel very confident in saying is don't lose hope after two weeks of like, Oh, nothing's, nothing's here. It is a slower a little bit slower process than when you drill it, or if you're used to traditional, like say tillage and then packing it and then coming back and just seeing this green carpet, when you no-till or, you know, spray with herbicide or seed and mow, you know, depending on the plant species within that soil uh, or within that field that you're trying to plant, it just seems to take a little bit long, but it does catch up. I promise that broadcast method always does seem to catch up. And then as far as the rates, you know, I'm one of these guys, I always think less is more plantings and the last thing you want to do at least with our mixes like if it was just a grain i mean we could talk nutrient tie up and stuff but i i won't go down that rabbit hole but you're not going to see at least i've never seen where you can put too much grains on that it's literally choking out the other grains but when you have five you know four or five 
different type of brassica species in a mix. And I mean, high quality radish, turnips, forage type brassicas that are meant to be browsed. You know, we're using the cattle industry. Those are awesome. I mean, those are really great mixes. The last thing you want to do is get crazy with seed. And yes, I could sell more seed if I recommended two X the rate, right? Like, I, yes, I understand that. People are like, oh, you know, don't you think you should do more? But I want people to be successful. And I don't think that what I want to do is have people go, oh my gosh, all my brassicas got choked out because I seeded too heavily. Right. Um, so I always tell people, increase it. Let's say you have an acre and you increase by 10% or 20%. So you bought two acres of seed save that last little bit of seed. And then if you go back in two weeks or three weeks and there's a couple bare spots here and there, just take your hand. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And just toss out a little bit of seed. And if you don't have bare spots, which good Lord willing, you got good rains and you don't, just save the seed, keep it in a cool, dry place. And next year, use that as your insurance policy. You know, you, you have a little bit extra to put down on those different areas, or maybe you have a new spot you want to try, you know, get a new permission spot, whatever it might be. Um, that's my recommendation on, on those seating rates. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, the, again, one, one of the biggest things that I was most hesitant about c- coming over to my own blend is just trying to figure out how much of a type of seed that where you're not overseeding and stunting everything because you've, you know, tried to pack too much seed. And so, yeah. yeah, that's certainly something that, when I was doing it myself, I was like, I spent weeks looking over the numbers of how much of each seed type, you know, how many pounds of each. Yeah, it just, it wrecked me. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's an exorbitant amount of work. And, um, you know, especially if you're trying to do, you know, two acres or three acres or four, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, it's just so much work to try to, to one, get all those seeds that you want and then try to mix them in the right ratios. and um, by time you do all of it, honestly, I, I, that's why I feel very good about our, you know, you buy from one of our distributors in acres, 99 bucks. I mean, I think that's a really good price to market for the amount of diversity that's in there. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's, I'm very proud to, to bring a seed blend to market that we don't try to say, you know, Albert's big buster turn up on there, <laughs> or, you know, which we can do variety, not stated. And then I can name it, you know, ties, ties clover or whatever. And, and that's fine. But I think that a lot of people, you know, appreciate just the transparency of like, hey, this is an A-pin forage turnip. That's awesome. This is a Winfred Brassica. Like, I, 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 they know what they're buying, right? They, they understand the quality. You know, hey, that's an Eagle Forage soybean that's in your spring mix. That's, every, you know, everybody knows that, that name. Um, so those are some of the things that I think that we do that are a, a little bit different and, and help to, again, be overly transparent with our customer. You know, one of the things you mentioned about with the seeding, you know, and seeding rates and things is I will say on drilling, um, you know, we recommend 45 pounds to the acre. And that's what most of our guys who have drills have been running. I will say that I think next year um, I might put a range of like 45 to like maybe 55, just because we did have a couple of people say, hey, I'd, I'd like it. I love the mix. It's doing great. But I just want it like a little bit more dense. So what I'm finding is it's kind of funny because what I'm finding is that uh, you can make the recommendations and then people have their own idea of exactly what they want to see. So I think what I want to do next year is um, run some calculations to make sure that it's still in a safe, from a density planting perspective, it's still like safe without choking out everything. So I want to run some numbers on that, but then I think I'm just going to give a range like, Hey, between, you know, 45 is what I'm going to do because I don't really want to spend extra money on extra seed. But if you want to go up to a little bit more, you know, go up to 50, but don't go more than that. Right. For, for talking purposes. So yeah. uh, we'll see, but that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking. That's what we've done on the broadcast, right? We've yep. given that range of like, what's your thatch look like, et cetera, and then make that decision on your own. And I think people are pretty happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I'm going with, I'm going to be doing 50 pounds per acre. Cause I, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to broadcast. I'm like, I'll just do an even 50, see how it looks. And then can always adjust next year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think with a little bit of rain, hopefully you get, it'll, it'll be jumping out of the ground. I'm sure of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with, at least with the, the cover crop I put in so far. I mean, I did get a lot more grass this year, probably because I tilled last year, brought up some of those, that seed a little bit. Um, but it's, I mean, even the grass areas, like you pull, you, you know, 
pull the stems away from that seed and there's bare dirt underneath those stems so i'm excited to see that when i broadcast in it's going to drop right down to that soil lay all that green stuff down on top of it it's going to be good oh absolutely yeah absolutely yeah no. yeah i mean it's amazing that sometimes i think people get really uh frustrated with weeds especially in the springtime and, and whatnot you know but i i have i have planted fields that were like old pipeline easements um one i'm working on this year was just an old overgrown thicket for like the last 30 years we just like bush hog like three acres out of it and uh of course there's a ton of weeds and grass and everything after you cut everything off of it um but when you pull a soil sample you're like well this soil's not that bad you know so yeah i'm going to use herbicide that for you know this first year to get things get things rocking and stuff um my point is is it's like just because grass there doesn't mean that the soil's bad we just have to adjust and, and you know maybe burn it down with herbicide and um get a good fall crop going that's going to help suppress those weeds into yep. next year yep you know so i always tell people all is not lost we're still having photosynthesis occurring and if that's happening good things are happening so the other thing you know i've talked quite a bit about how i basically i spread my seed out and i go through and terminate with a you know herbicide and uh basically a like a cause pack or a roller or something like that just to lay it down. But then you had mentioned that flail mower and I looked into it a little bit. It looks pretty intriguing. Um, so I was wondering how would you just basically do the same thing? You would broadcast and then mow over top of that? Or do you mow it and then try spreading the seed down after you've mowed? I would rather mow over the top personally. Um, that's what I've done with the bush hog. I have not used a flail mower um, yet. Okay. I have some friends who have them. Um, but what intrigued me about the flail mower is the NRC. I don't know if I sent it to you, but if you Google, is it USDA? Maybe it is. And they did flail mower studies on this, and um, they they did crimpers, flail mowers, and there was one other one. And I apologize, I don't remember, but I think um, maybe it was like a sickle bar mower or something like that. And what was really interesting is it was a three-way cover crop. It was hairy vetch crimson clover and like medium red clover so not super easy well crimson and hairy vetch are fairly easy to, to terminate crimson especially like with a crimper i mean crimson is toast but um as long as it's at the you know fairly decent time of year to do it but uh, the vetch and stuff I, I follow like i mentioned a lot of these farming groups and guys will get really irritated they're trying to figure out how do i not tangle up my my planter etc so anyhow um, long way of saying this USDA study did it in the highest rate of termina termination. I want to say it was like in the 90 percentile was flail mowing. Now with everything, there comes negatives. I don't know a ton about flail mowing, but one of the, some of the things that I've heard is like the speed at which you have to, to drive is, is relatively slow. Like you're not cutting across that field. Like when you have a bush hog on the back, you know, you have to drive, um, relatively slow. So it's just like a crimper, like crimpers are awesome. Um, but there's some negatives, right? Uneven ground, you know, I have to go a little bit slower. It's not like putting, you know, um, just like herbicide. Yeah, you got a big boom, you can cover a lot of ground really fast, but you're using herbicide, which in and of itself is something that bothers some people. So with, I, I always try to say to people, every single option is going to have some pros, some cons, but, um, but yeah, I'm intrigued as well by the flail mower um, option. I've actually been trying to look for some used ones or there's some brands out there that seem to be fairly affordable, um, especially compared to some of the costs of other things that are out on the market right now. I just, I'm not familiar with the brands and I don't want to buy something and be like, this thing's a piece of junk. Right. Yeah. So if you find anything, Ty, please shoot me an email because I'm, I'm definitely interested to, to kind of know um, what people recommend out there as far as flail mowers go. But the studies are definitely intriguing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause that was the one thing, I, cause yeah, I've watched a few videos on how they operate and, um, I mean, they're pretty interesting pieces of equipment for sure. And I was just like, well, you know, I've never done, you know, the, like a seed in the mode to terminate before. So I was like, I wonder how that really works out. So, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, because yeah, again, one of those things like herbicide works great, but if you're trying to get away from it, you know, you got to look at some of those other options and cause yeah. Absolutely. And that's something like I have fields this year that will have uh, herbicide used on hundred percent. But I have other fields that look so the the fall mix did such a good job of suppressing weeds for my spring planting that I I don't think I'm going to use herbicide this fall like at all 
and not on every field, but on some fields that look really good, there's enough biomass there that I plan on seeding and mowing off, you know, sorghum and everything like that and just laying it down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I do think that as a system progresses, you know, again, not everybody can go out and and buy a tractor and buy a crimper and buy a no-till drill. And that's a, something when I say, you know, we at Vitalize we want to be accessible to people. It's like, I want to have the conversations that we're having right now with the guy who's like, hey, here's here's what I have. Like, this is all I got. I got a, a disc, you know, and it's like, okay, you, you feel you need a disc? Yes, I do. Okay, well, can we change the angles on the disc? Can it not tear up the soil as much? Can we put them straighter? Like, there's little things that we can do that any step, in my opinion, towards soil conservation is a step in the right direction. Totally agree. Yeah. So that's the other thing is like, yeah, I mean, there's, there's uh, certainly no uh, right or wrong way to do it, especially in regards to where you're at, you know, what your train looks like, like you said, plenty of ways to skin a cat for sure. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a guy out of Wisconsin. Have you ever seen uh, Wagner implements? No, I haven't. He's, I think his name's Marcus, super nice guy. I've messaged him with before. He makes a bunch of these small, like two and three row planners. I mean, this guy, he is super talented. I mean, his work is just beautiful. Check him out on social media, Wagner Implements. I mean, he, he takes like old 7,000, you know, John Deere or 7,100, whatever the planters are, cuts them down and, and redoes all their work, puts row cleaners on there, seed bed firmers. I mean, they look like something out of a magazine. And then he he can weld really good and he's made like some vertical tillage equipment, you know, and and that's something that's fairly big in the ag space as well, that you're not necessarily digging into the soil, but it's it's more of a residue management uh, technique, you know, now. So you're basically chopping up, let's say, corn stalks. You see, so you're just running it across the top. Now, the downside of that for food plotters in, in a lot of cases is one, again, terrain. Um, two is you do have to drive from what I, the minimal that I know about vertical tillage is it does take, um, quite a bit of speed in order to actually have an impact on the residue, uh, which in a lot of guys, food plots, they're just simply in a small little field. It's, it's not like a big square field where they can just open it up and, and let the tractor run. Um, but again, just another neat thing that has been used in the ag space for a long time. You look up vertical, like look up Great Plains vertical tillage, and they'll show videos out in Kansas where these farmers are open, you know, running wide open across the field, and like the soil doesn't even look disturbed, but they're just chopping up all of the residue. It's really cool, and um, and he actually has made. I don't know if he's selling them yet or if they're still prototypes, but he's made some for like food plot size. So again just another neat little thing that it like, I wouldn't look down if somebody's like, I like tillage or I like that. I think we have to be cognizant of some of the negative impacts we can have on our fungal systems, um, erosion, et cetera. But at the same time, hey, you wanna use cover crops twice a year, you wanna reduce fertilizer, you wanna reduce herbicide. You know, I think there's something to be said about just trying to make everything more inclusive and more based on like truly peer-reviewed research that's out there that we can all rely and teach each other on and not just like, you know, the, the old, uh, Hey, I always done it this way. Or, you know, Hey, I heard this at the local watering hole. This is what you're supposed to do. And, and I think that's just been what's happened in food plotting for so long. Yep. You plant brassicas, what are you supposed to do? Hammer them with nitrogen, you know? And I used to do that. Cause that's like, that's the information that was out there. Yep. And it's like today, I, I just think we can do so much with the resources that we have to help educate each other. And uh, I love doing it. I, I love talking with guys. I learn more every day. And, uh, you know, I'm really thankful for guys like you and all of our customers that have given us a chance or emailed. And even if they haven't bought yet, I mean, if they've just emailed and let me talk to them about their soil samples or whatever, I mean, I love it. Yeah. I absolutely love it. And I appreciate every one of you. Well, thanks, man. No, again, you guys came out with a great product. I mean, especially because you know, what I had envisioned, what I was trying to create, you guys did it and did it better. So, I mean, I was so thankful when I looked at what you guys did. I'm like, well, my job just got so much easier because I don't have to <laughs> bust my brain anymore to try to figure this out. These guys did it for me. Um, and speaking of which, so we really didn't even talk about the, the carbon load blend and, you know, you know, basically that's getting everything together for basically food plot season and, you know, your fall, your fall blend to be able to hunt over. So 
Um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, did we do break down a little bit? You've got, you got your cereal grains, you've got your uh, clovers, you got multiple different types of clovers in there, the different types of brassicas. Um, and yeah, and again, like you said, it's going to be what a breakdown of adding that carbon that can get broke down then from the, the nitro boost in the spring then. Did I sum that exactly. up pretty right? Okay. Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, so when you when you look at mixes, um, you know, every plant is has a, a, is made up of, of parts carbon and parts nitrogen. And the lower a carbon to nitrogen ratio, the faster a plant is going to break down. So, for example, hairy vetch is about 11 to 1 carbon to nitrogen. If I had a monoculture of hairy vetch that was planted in the fall, and I came in the spring, and that hairy vetch was still growing, and I terminated it with glyphosate, you would expect to come back in a couple of weeks and see very minimal hairy vetch left, just like clover. If you ever have sprayed a clover plot off and you come back, you're like, man, it's just bare dirt. There is no thatch. But I think this paints a really good visual, right, to understand carbon and nitrogen ratios. If you had a monoculture of rye grain and you sprayed it off at the same time period to the field, say a field of hairy vetch on one side, field of rye grain on the next, and you sprayed it off and you came back two weeks later and you looked at that hairy vetch field that looks like nothing's there, you looked at that rye grain field, what would you expect to see? You'd expect to see straw. It'd look like somebody just cut straw up and put it out to plant their yard or yep. something like that. And the reason that is, is because the higher carbon to nitrogen ratio of the rye grain. So with our mixes, what we focus it on is if you can maximize your understanding of carbon to nitrogen ratios, you can maximize your nutrient cycling. So in the spring, as that rye grain's breaking down because our nitro boost, as we call it, our, our spring summer mix is giving the soil the things to cycle the nutrients out of that rye grain, winter wheat, triticale, et cetera. It is pulling those nutrients out, feeding your nitro feeding your microbes and getting your soil prepped up because now your nitro boost is taking all of that, using it, assimilating it, growing, capturing the nitrate that is going to get through the system with your sunflowers and things like that. Now it's getting terminated and your carbon load is going back in and that carbon load is going to suck all those nutrients out. So the key though, is that make sure that you don't have too much carbon or vice versa. If you have too much carbon in a system and your microbes don't have enough nitrogen, you'll have what's called nitrogen or nutrient tie up. You simply will have your nutrients where similar to the situation you described with your own field. Well, the scary part about this is the inverse. So if you have too much nitrogen, and this can be supplemented through nitrogen fertilization, um, but even just monocultures of legumes without cover crops, right? Um, Or without fall cover crops, I should say. If you have too much nitrogen in a system, your your microbes are gonna be, be populated rapidly, right? They're getting fed, they're getting fed. But what ends up happening to they're they're sitting here going, hey man, we need carbon. We gotta balance this out, right? They're always working towards equilibrium. We gotta balance our system out. We gotta balance our system out. Hey, I need some parts carbon here. Well, where are they gonna go if there's no carbon left? They're gonna go to your organic matter. You can literally mine your own organic matter if you don't have your system balanced. So that's why with our system, we've really put a big focus in trying to explain the carbon to nitrogen ratios. Um, I don't think it's talked about enough. I don't think that it's explained enough. And that's again, why I go back to, you know, we're really a nutrient cycling company um, because we want to make sure that we're cycling, the, the building the soil aspect, organic matter increases in, in uh, conversely CEC increasing over time is organic matter because they're very directly correlated. That's all awesome. And that, but that's a byproduct of good soil health practices and, and cycling nutrients from spring to fall and fall to spring. Oh, and of course, we want it to be hyper attractive to white-tailed deer. So, you know, we do things like put in forage turnips instead of just purple top. You know, we want them to add a couple different varieties of forage turnip. You know, Winfred brassica, which is a hybrid um, between a rape and a kale, and it can actually grow it doesn't grow much of a bulb, if at all. Sometimes it'll have a little, little small bulb. Um, so we're not really doing that one from a huge uh, below ground, um, you know, subsoil uh, uh, aeration perspective. Uh, but the nice thing about brassicas, or that particular brassica, is it can grow three foot top. So a ton of above ground biomass, which is obviously we still want to feed our feed our whitetail. Yep. You know, um, so we try to do a lot of those things as well. Um, and then I will, the last thing I'll mention on that fall mix is 
people sometimes realize, well, should you mix your brassicas and your grains and whatnot? Yeah. Interestingly enough, um, brassicas are non-mycorrhizal. Mycorrhizal is a fungal network within the soil that helps to communicate all things from plants to the sub to subsoil as your your to your subsoil microbes. As your systems progress, they typically go from a um, bacterial dominated to a fungal dominated system, which allows them to break down higher lignin filled crops faster. Um, lignin would be like that rye straw after growing season, right? It's tougher, it's more full of lignin. Fungal, uh, it, it, fungal networks are needed in order to break down those type of, of trees, uh, or excuse me, those type of plants. Similarly, like you would see in a forest when a tree falls, um, and it's decaying, what do you normally see on them is mushrooms. So fungal dominated systems are breaking down that higher lignin filled crop. The reason I say that is because although brassicas are non-mycorrhizal, I think this is really cool and shows how little we actually know about biosignaling that happens between plants and, and root systems um, and all of the microsystems. But what we do know is when brassicas are planted alongside plants that are mycorrhizal, so they communicate very well with the mycorrhizal system through root exudation, they can actually then tap into and take advantage of the mycorrhizal system. So if they're just planted in a monoculture, they have no communication with mycorrhizal, there's no reason for fungal networks even be associated with them. But when planted in complementary species, they actually are able to take advantage of that. So what does that mean? Better drought resistance, better pest resistance, higher nutrient density because they're able to take up um, nutrients more efficiently, et cetera. Um, so I won't go down the whole rabbit hole of that, but it, there definitely is a lot of interesting science um, behind that and why people like Dr. Christine Jones and Dr. James White in his rise of phagy cycle um, discussions talk about some of the importance of um, how those microbes cycle. And in Dr. Christine Jones' speech is talking about, you know, complementary plant species, whether they're non-mycorrhizal or not, but why they're actually important because when they work together, they all get the benefits of that subsoil microbiome. Yep. Yeah. And like I ran into that last year because that was the first year I really put everything all together with my brassicas, sewer rise, everything like that. And yeah, I didn't notice any um, you know, indication that mixing everything together was a detriment. In fact, it was probably the best food plot I'd had since I started food plotting. So That's awesome. it was kind of like one of those things like, well, whatever the, the caution of not mixing this together, I didn't see it. So I think I'm good. <laughs> That's awesome. That's like good for you. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just got to try it, you know, and yep. um, I mean, with our mixes, it's pretty tried and true. You know, I, I shot a five and a half year old um, buck off the one of my fields, uh, November 3rd, my cousin killed a five and a half year old big heavy eight point off one of our fields two years before that, just shooting piles of dough over these fields. I mean, there's All no, right. yep. um, and, and you see in the pictures, I mean, we have turnips and brassicas as big as my ball cap, you know, I mean, so it definitely works. You're not choking it out. The biggest thing is you do have to have the right balance. I mean, you can't put 12 pounds of turnips down and 300 pounds of rye and go, wait a second, this didn't work. Well, no, that isn't going to. So having that balance is really important. And uh, I think that's what we bring to, to the, to the market and the food plot industry. Yeah. All right, man. Well, again, my battery's getting low, so I'm starting to get nervous that we're going to get cut off here. So, but before I let you go, you know, you talked about that you've got dealers, um, you know, throughout the, the country there. And I saw too that um, you guys on your website uh, is doing also free shipping on the yes. carbon load. So that, especially if someone wants to try it and they don't have a dealer near them, you know, that is a huge deal. I mean, uh, that's why I turned away from ordering seed from companies that weren't local a few years ago is because of shipping. If you want to give it a try, now's the time to do it if you want to try the seed blend out because you know, saving on the shipping is you know about half the cost you end up especially if you have a larger food pot you're trying to do so so certainly yeah absolutely thanks so certainly, Ty. and we can also do bulk orders and we've done bulk orders for guys who are they don't have a dealer neither I and mean, they're like hey i need 15 acres or something we've done bulk orders on that you know just contact us separately um, but yeah, free shipping on all orders. We do have on our website, find a distributor. Um, I think there's 13 of them now, a um, couple in Michigan, Ohio, et cetera. And we're adding more. 
Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Ty. This has been a lot of fun. I know I talk a lot, but, uh, no, hopefully man. my passion no. comes through. I mean, I'm not sure if you caught the fact that I was, as you're talking, I'm like writing notes, like, okay, looking <laughs> at that later. Can I look into that later? Yeah. No, no, man. You are a wealth of knowledge. And, um, like I said, I'm excited to see, you know, what this turns into this year, especially with, you know, getting away from, uh, the fertilizer for the first year see how it does. Um, you know, I'm curious to see if I do have any, uh, deficiencies that is going to pop up or I might see some some of the plants struggle a little bit but um, I think overall especially because you you covered with me going through my soil sample and it there's room for improvement but it's not it's not too bad so I think we'll be all right for this year and um and then you said that you know with your blogs and whatnot where if someone was looking to you know look up some of those writings and whatnot where could they find that as well yeah, I uh, so I think I have it called Soil Health Friday on uh, the Michigan Sportsman's Forum. Um, so obviously that's a pretty popular forum. Um, and then I also post them on Facebook under uh, Habitat Chat, uh, which is um, it's called Habitat Chat by Habitat Podcast. Um, or you can just follow our Facebook page at Vitalize Seed, and uh, we post them there as well. Same with our Instagram, Vitalize Seed, um, and we'll post links to those uh, to those there as well. Perfect. Yep. And then certainly, man, you know, I'll make sure to have links, uh, everything that you just covered there in the show notes. So if anyone wants to quick find you, they can certainly do that as well, man. But yeah, I appreciate you taking the time and going over all this. So yeah, man, I mean, is, there, buddy. is there anything else before anytime. I let you go that, that you think that needs to be covered or highlighted? Just enjoy it. I mean, we're having fun, right? I mean, we're having fun. Enjoy it. Be safe. Don't stress yourself out. You know, I mean, uh, food plotting and, and planning things for wildlife or, you know, even your garden or whatnot. I mean, you, you got to enjoy it. So enjoy it and, and reach out anytime. Um, I try to be super accessible. Email, um, you know, email and text is typically the best. Sometimes people call me and it's like I got a one year old son, so I'm chasing him around. But uh, <laughs> email and text work out the best or Facebook Messenger. And um, no, I, I just I appreciate you. I appreciate all our customers, our distributors, et cetera. It's, it's really fun to uh, to get this opportunity. And thank you so much for having me on. All right. That is a wrap on the conversation with Albert. I probably should have warned everyone to make sure you had a pen and notepad ready. Uh, having listened back through the conversation, I should have gave you fair warning that you're going to want to take some notes. Albert threw out a ton of information out there and I should have thought of it because even going through both times originally talking to him and then also listening again and doing my edits, I wrote down basically a half a page of additional notes on, you know, what he explained, other topics to look into more and different, you know, implements to utilize and, you know, basically just stuff that he covered that I want to learn more about. Again, sorry for not giving you fair warning. You may have to listen through it again, take some take some of those notes down, or just start following some of those links that he explained that's going to be also down in the show notes to learn more about Vitalize Seed and the approach that Albert takes to improving soil health and creating better food. So that's going to be it for this episode. So again, as always, get out there. Be safe and have fun.